Hi, I'm Meredith Roden, and I'm the host of the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. On this episode, I'm here with our health and sciences reporter, Shannon Millard, to talk about a big controversy that happened on campus. Shannon, can you set the stage for us? On Monday morning, um, Associate Director of the School of Media and Public Affairs, David Karp, uh, he saw a report from the news organization Slate that there has been a bedbug infestation in the New York Times offices. And he said that right after he saw that release that he just quickly typed out a tweet uh, comparing a conservative New York Times columnist, Brett Stevens, to a bedbug. So on Twitter, he wrote, the bedbugs are a metaphor. The bedbugs are Brett Stevens. Made on Twitter. And since then, Karf has kind of gone viral. He's having a real moment in the media. He is basically getting his 10 minutes of fame right now. What was it like to meet with a, basically a local celebrity here at GW? So I met Karf this morning at the Washington Hilton and DuPont Circle, where he is currently there for an American Political Science Association meeting. Uh, so I went with uh, a couple members of staff, or one of our podcast producers, and also a photographer, and I got to chat for, with him for a few minutes about his comments on Twitter. All right, and let's listen to that conversation now. While I'm walking home from work, I look on Twitter and I see that I have zero retweets and nine likes. I thought this was going to be like three retweets and 20 likes. I was like mildly disappointed for Not a sec. Yeah, yeah, like I, like that's that's like the baseline that I thought that tweet deserved was like I think that three of my friends are gonna think this is funny enough to retweet it, um, but like that's okay they can't all be hits. I go home, I like put my toddler to bed, I get I like set up, get set up. I'm like I have Chris Hayes on in the background and I'm getting set up to like actually do some more work that night, and then I get this email that says in the title from Brett Stevens, comma New York Times. He tells me that I've set set a new low for Twitter discourse. Uh, that uh, oh, he's seeing the provost, which is very important in this whole this, this whole saga, uh, and invites me to come to his house and meet his family and call him a bedbug to his face. Otherwise, I lack intellectual integrity. There was the one thing that was slightly familiar is there's a um, an editor I think from Deadspin named, named uh, Samer Kalef. I might be mispronouncing his last name, his name, which I feel bad about. It's been a long time. Um, so he posted an article several months ago that I, I had read a couple times, it's pretty hilarious, about how he had read a Brett Stevens column, he was really frustrated, and he sent him an email saying, like, you, you, know, you ought to quit your job and donate your salary. Um, and Brett Stevens, after the, uh, Brett Stevens looked him up on the internet, like, you know, really, like, Google searched the guy hard, and when he saw that he was, like, a lower-ranking journalist than him, just penned this spectacularly patronizing email explaining to him that, you know, I'm successful and you're not and you should learn from your betters and you should watch out because, you know, someday you'll want a job and they're going to they're gonna ask me what I think of you and I'm ethical, so I would never, but, you know, you, you really ought to respect your betters. And it was just a fully absurd email. So when I got that email from him, I was like, is this like this guy's hobby? Um, and I, again, the astonishing thing, which I, I've mentioned a lot of reporting, but I mentioned just now, is I didn't even use his Twitter handle. Which means the only way that he sees my no-traffic tweet is if he spends his Monday nights just searching the internet for mentions of his name on social media to find someone who he can be offended by and then contact their boss. I'm a tenured white dude. Like, I, I'm, I'm fine. And, the, like, my colleagues like me and, like, the provost was going to have my back. I was not worried that the provost would say, Dave, what have you done here? Um, 
But if he's sending that, if he's spending Monday nights searching the internet to get offended by people, he's probably also doing that to people who don't have tenure. He's probably doing that to people who aren't even in a tenure track job. He's probably doing that to women and minorities. And that's that's an abuse of power that would have real consequences for somebody other than me. If he had emailed me directly, I would have penned a polite response because I would have bought the premise that Brett Stevens from the New York Times was shocked by my lack of civility and wanted an explanation. I One of the things that I study is uh, political discourse on the internet. So if a New York Times columnist wants to have that conversation with me, sure, that's a thing I'll spend Monday night doing. But if he's ceasing the provost, and he also separately emailed Frank Sesno about it, the director of SCTA, if he's ceasing the provost, then that makes it clear it's not a genuine invite to his house. It's not a genuine call for civility. This is him saying... I'm a columnist at the New York Times. People like you are supposed to be fearful of columnists at the New York Times because we have a higher station in life than you. And I'm demanding your respect and making sure your boss knows what you're doing. And that means that, that this is about power, it's not about civility. If it's about power, as a professor who studies strategic political communication, I know that if it's about power, then the response has to be about power as well. People were asking that night, you know, has the provost responded yet? And I kept on replying, it's like 9 or 10 p.m. on the first night of school. He shouldn't be responding tonight. He should have other things to do. I don't think he even saw it until the morning anyway. Um, But he wrote a polite reply that defended my right to say what I said, defended the principles of free speech and academic freedom, uh, and then also said, look, you've invited Professor Carp to your house. If you would like to come to GW for this conversation, you're welcome to do that as well. I think this, I at least think that the news cycle, I thought this news cycle would be over on Wednesday. Um, And again, I study this stuff for a living, like I have a sense of the rhythm. He extended it with the MSNBC comments he made. Trump extended it by tweeting about it. Um, And like his response was just so over the top that like the meme is probably going to last for a while. But after, what, 48 hours or so of every time I log on to Twitter being like, well, that's too many mentions. like it's now calming down and I think the people who just follow me on Twitter are quickly going to realize that it, like I'm not actually that clever like I'm, I'm like pretty clever but again like it's pretty much all bad jokes so I think this cycle is ending um, and that's I mean like this has been fun um, I would not want this to be my day to day life it's like pretty weird but it, it has been a more fun type of weird than I would have expected by it but I wouldn't take away the lesson that being in the center of this is goofy fun for people I would take away the lesson that in this rare set of circumstances where the person who picks a fight with you is clearly the one who's being absurd and also there's really no big constituency that's going to yell at you in, in their defense under those circumstances it gets to be fun instead of scary so i got pretty lucky with that i'm here with academics editor jared gans to talk about an issue that seems to come up every year around this time and that is textbooks they're expensive students have to buy a lot of them Jared, you spoke with professors and experts about how this is affecting GW. Jared, what did you find? In my investigation, I found that students taking introductory STEM courses need to pay significantly more for their books than those in liberal arts courses. On average, students in those intro STEM courses need to pay about 85% more for their books than those in liberal arts courses like English or American Studies. When you talk to professors, 
What were their concerns and how are they going to go about fixing the issue? Gail Wald, who is the chair of the American Studies Department, said that a way the department gets around having students have to buy expensive books is by not using textbooks and instead focusing on primary sources and novels that could be used in class instead so students can have cheaper options. Additionally, she said professors often look to not buy, not require hardback books and use paper books because they can be significantly cheaper. But what about professors who teach in the STEM classes that you found were more expensive? The professors for the STEM courses that were part of the investigation were not available for comment. And when you talked to experts, did they have any suggestions about why that might be the case that STEM textbooks are more expensive? Jay Halfond, who is a professor at Boston University, said that it is an unfortunate truth for many students taking STEM courses that there just simply is not a cheaper option to these very expensive textbooks, and also that often new editions of STEM textbooks come out every few years, which prevents students from being able to resell their old books because they are no longer up to date. I think to be fair, we have to point out that GW does offer some resources in this area. Can you talk about those? Right. Gelman Library offers uh, textbook sharing so students can go in and rent out a textbook for a period of a few hours if they need that. But the issue that might exist for that is if students need it for an extended period of time and if students can't plan in advance of when they need the textbook, then that system only goes so far in helping them with what they need. Well, thanks for taking this deep dive into this issue. Thanks for having me. On our culture segment this week, Sydney Lee is here to talk about a new art exhibit. This is an art exhibit with a very fun name, but I don't know anything about it. So, Sydney, can you give us a brief summary? Yeah, sure. So, the exhibit is called Fast Fashion Slow Art. And it's currently on display in the Corcoran School of Art and Design, so it's in the Flag Building. It's basically an installation of 11 videos that start conversations about the fast fashion industry and its sustainability both for labor and the environment. So what inspired the artists here? They really wanted to start conversations about fast fashion and how these inexpensive trends in clothing can be bad for the environment, and they also go into examinations of the working conditions that a lot of these workers have to go through. For people who aren't as familiar with the issue of fast fashion, can you kind of talk about what the artist is trying to showcase here? Definitely. So the curators wanted to bring attention to the amount of energy that it takes to make clothes and how fast fashion is hurting the environment. And then they also wanted to showcase a lot of the poor conditions that workers have to work in. So how are they showcasing this? Can you give me uh, a summary of some of the videos? Yeah, so a lot of the videos show workers in their factory environments. And one of the videos shows a factory worker working their 15-hour workday in the unhealthy situation that they're in. During the interview with Bibiana Obler, one of the co-curators of the exhibit, she was saying that they actually started working on this project many years ago, so it seems like they're kind of riding the wave of, oh, fast fashion is bad, but this has been in the process for a long time, and now it's just happened to be showcased at the same time that fast fashion is really prevalent in conversations. 
And can you kind of describe the the mood of all of the art? Like, is it kind of an uplifting, like, here's how we can do better? Or is it more like, this is really, this is really like a horrible thing and like more kind of not as uplifting? Yeah, so the exhibit is broken down into three rooms in the gallery. And the first room, there's a lot of satire going on in the videos. And then the second room shows a lot of videos of factory workers and it definitely has a gray overtone throughout the exhibit. It's not an uplifting experience, but it is very intriguing. So yes, definitely. I think you should spend a lot of time in the exhibit. You need to sit down and watch the videos. A lot of them can be upwards of 20 minutes. So if you want to dedicate part of your day, I would definitely recommend going and really sitting and interacting with the videos. All right, thank you for talking to us about this new exhibit. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by Meredith Roten and features culture editor Sydney Lee. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Jacob Fulvag, assistant photo editor Ariel Bader, and podcast host Meredith Roten. Music is produced by Olk Studio. A special thanks this week to Dave Karp and Shannon Millard for joining us.